You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Future Tech Health podcast. I have uh, Dr. Robin Bannister, the founder, uh, director of research and development at the Care Oncology Clinic. Very unique clinic that uh, we'll get into. I just want to do this really brief intro and then uh, welcome Robin. Thank you for coming. Hi, Richard. No problem. Yeah. If you don't mind, tell listeners, what is the Care Oncology Clinic? What's the mission? What's it about? Okay. Thanks, Richard. Uh, There are lots of reasons why people start companies. And Care Oncology Clinic was not my first, but it's the one of which I'm most proud. I started the clinic with my colleague, Gregory Stoloff. My reason for wanting to start the company was a very simple one, actually, and a very personal one. My wife had cancer. She had breast cancer, misdiagnosed, and then finally correctly diagnosed in 2005. She became metastatic in 2010. And so there I am. You know, I'm a, I'm a scientist. I work with drugs. I can read papers. I understand statistics. I can see survival tables. I can see all the data. You know, drugs is what I do for a living, really. And so my wife's metastatic disease and the organs affected gave her a runway of about two years. She probably wouldn't even have seen her 50th birthday. So what was I to do? You know, it's simple, I suppose. In all my professional life, I've been spending that with drugs and the last 25 of those looking at old drugs and trying to understand their true nature and how the biology and science we now understand can be used to repurpose those drugs to better effect. And so in my case, I guess there was no time. My wife didn't have time. I had no time. We needed to do something now. And that was way back. And so that was really the the germ behind uh, starting Care Oncology Clinic, you know, a personal thing, really. You said you looked at um, old drugs, but I would guess that most people's view is that we need a new drug, a new drug, a new drug. It's never a look at the old. Why in your career did you look at old drugs? It's seems different to me yeah that's really interesting isn't it that you know we rarely know what a drug does until it really gets onto the market um if you ask most people uh, how many drugs are there they'll say well actually you know i think i can think of a hundred or something like that they may say and that is uh, just way 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 underestimating what the pharmacopoeia really is there are some five thousand materials maybe seven thousand if you want to count them a different way to uh, outline what the existing pharmacopoeia is. And we really don't know what these drugs do until we get them into uh, into the marketplace, if you like, into patients, and we can start to understand what they really do and then find out where they might truly be positioned in uh, treatment. Aspirin is probably one of the best known of, of these sorts of drugs, I suppose, Um, first used by the uh, Egyptians, it might be, over 2,000 years ago, chewing 
acacia bark and getting some relief from arthritis in that manner. And then I suppose as a modern drug, it was really only really uh, considered, well, it's actually just over 120 years old now. Um, and I suppose in the last 30, 40 years, we know it's platelet activity. Today, we're only starting to understand its potential use in cancer even. And that information goes back sort of 50, 70 years. And it's it's understanding what drugs really do that's important. And I think we can do that so much better with old drugs. And so many of these have been repurposed uh, today. Um, in, the, in the particular area of cancer, I think there's a, a tremendous opportunity for us. And that's why we set up Care Oncology Clinic. In part, I suppose it was about not having enough time to invent new drugs, but understanding that there were many, many old drugs that had a, had a part to play. Yeah, that's an interesting insight. Um, is there a way that, I mean, just, you know, you can, I guess, hear anecdotal results. Let's say you're a clinician and you prescribe certain drugs and you've seen their effects in thousands of people over the years. I mean, that's like a pretty powerful anecdotal summary, but is there a way to get actual data? Does anyone keep data on yeah. the effects of drugs that are out there? We could look yeah. at it in a, in a huge Richard, absolutely, absolutely, they do. The amount of data that's freely available to everybody uh, to try and understand what drugs do is absolutely enormous. Um, it's, it's becoming greater every year, of course. Um, and it's, it's free for people to inspect and to, to sort of understand. In my own case, you know, I was obviously interested in um, drugs to treat cancer for, for my wife. And what I was looking at here was to try and develop a strategy, really, of, of trying to work my way through um, all of that data on those sort of 5,000 or so materials that, that could be used. When I thought about it, you know, I didn't really want to try and find a new cytotoxic drug. You know, these are the sort of generally toxic drugs that uh, we use to preferentially kill cancer cells. All the patients would be very well familiar with these, killing cancer cells and shrinking tumors. I, I didn't expect to find that sort of drug uh, in the pharmacopoeia easily because they would stick out so clearly in the data. And having seen all the sort of terrible side effects that such drugs can give and the chemotherapy that my wife had, I was in no hurry to try and find additional cytotoxic drugs. But uh, when I was doing my general reading in that area, I became aware that there are a lot of drugs that, although not really generally toxic to cancer cells on their own, nevertheless appear to have some activity in cancer, either you know through preclinical pre uh, information, so that's animals and cells and test tubes and so on, or cellular stuff, um, all at the, the anecdotal level. But when I really got into it, I was absolutely surprised by what I found. Many of the drugs seem to act upon metabolic pathways that were either unique to cancer cells or heavily preferred by them. So this, read, this led me directly into a, something that really hugely surprised me. And it was the, the best known of these uh, metabolic processes is, is the Warburg effect. Um, maybe that lots of your listeners will have heard of this now. It's become something that people can start to talk about. But it was an observation made by Otto Warburg in the in the early 1920s, for which he eventually won the Nobel Prize in 1931. And what he did was, well, in his own words, he said the prime cause of cancer is the replacement of respiration of oxygen in normal body cells by the fermentation of sugar. I mean, that's what he described as the the, met, the unique metabolism of cancer cells. 
But today, almost 100 years later, we'd use a much wider explanation uh, about the unique metabolic changes in cancer cells. But the sentiment's still the same, uh, still the same as Otto Warburg's work. Um, but the question here, um, say? How, did you, how do you know that a drug that's not even intended, let's say, to affect cancer would affect cancer? Like, you know, from what I understand, one of the drugs that you may work with is like a deworming agent. If someone yeah. gets worms, how would anyone make the connection between that and a cancer fighting ability of it? Yeah. So the, the, the fundamental principles behind our protocol is that the, the protocol drugs um, all affect the metabolic and related processes in cancer cells. This is, this is what um, lots of people have since described as the sort of Achilles heel of cancer, that these are the uh, unique or much preferred metabolic processes of cancer cells that separate them from normal cells. You know, and when people talk about this as being, and you can see papers entitled things like metabolism, the Achilles heel of cancer, um, that all sounds a bit sensationalist, sort of overhyping it. But in reality, I think it's correct. I think Warburg was correct. And that uh, metabolism has a, a key part to play in cancer therapy today. In fact, we, we even talk about uh, metabolic treatments in, in cancer and hold conferences on that topic today. It's interesting to think about it, actually. You know, if you think about what, what Warburg was saying, and remember that's over 100 years old in it as a con concept, it's a concept that's older than chemotherapy, radiotherapy, hormone therapy, and immunotherapy. The actually only cancer therapy that is older uh, in, in conceptual terms than uh, hormone, uh, than um, metabolic treatment of, of, of cancer is that of surgery. That's a really sort of chilling thought. And there's yeah. a, a really excellent book available on this topic by Travis Christofferson entitled Tripping Over the Truth. It really tells the the history from Warburg's initial discovery on and up and to where we get to today. So it's these metabolic changes that uh, we target with the drugs. The, the vast amount of literature behind all of these describes these at uh, cellular levels in, in animal tissues, excised human tissues, small clinical studies, and indeed very large epidemiological studies. And it's putting that entire jigsaw together that allows us to say, actually, potentially putting a, a protocol together like we've got, where we can impact different aspects of these uh, unique uh, metabolic processes, can potentially have a part to play in cancer. But of course, so at this point, point um, at this Sorry? point, was the at this point was the uh, hallmarks of cancer paper out yet? They read about two thousand, or was this before uh, so this? Yeah, so that's a relatively recent thing, I think, really. Um, people's been aware of meta metabolic changes in cancer for, well, generations, it seems, almost, um, of which I think uh, metabolic processes underlying cancer is one, as well as, you know, the genetic changes that people talk about as well. So what was your thought process then? You knew Otto Warburg's work. Was that enough to get you going and searching or like, you know, how did things proceed from there with you mentally? Yeah. So armed with that, uh, it was, I suppose, relatively straightforward detective task for me to, to, to start to evaluate and to look at the sort of drugs we might want to use. Made easier, actually, by the great blossoming 
of the range of drugs that have been developed over the last 50 to 70 years or so that goes to generate all this sort of 5,000, 7,000 uh, pharmacopil drugs. You see, these were the materials that were used in many of the investigations, those preclinical things, those uh, test tubes, the animals and, and uh, human clinical studies that uh, went to elucidate Warburg's hypothesis. And of course, these then go on further to explore mechanisms that were not available to Warburg. So, for example, we now know that many cancer cells protect themselves through efflux pumps. That is that they pump out the very chemo drugs designed to kill them. But this requires an energy source, Warburg, not only to make these pumps, but also to operate them. So limiting the energy sources inside a cancer cell reduces its ability to defend itself through these sorts of uh, mechanisms, through these efflux pumps. And again, cancer cells are adept at repairing their own DNA. Uh, it's been damaged by the radiotherapy or chemotherapies. But to make the materials responsible for that repair requires an energy source for their manufacture inside the, the cancer cell and then to use them inside the cancer cell. So again, limiting the cancer cell's access to the materials it needs to, to make these uh, uh, enzymes and function on these processes makes them more... Uh, susceptible to the challenges that the the cancer cell finds itself in, and that's the the basis of the treatment, really. So okay, so you this was your thinking. How many drugs did you have to review to find the ones that you're looking for? I mean, yeah, so, so my all five thousand must have been <laughs> no. a good story, but uh, I don't know how many was it. Last not quite that long, Richard. But you need a um, a way of reducing that number down to a manageable kind of size but it's worth remembering then what you're trying to do in a cancer patient and what a can how a cancer patient presents you know they that they, they are in a situation where they're no doubt getting a standard of care treatment that involves a lot of side effects that go with that wherever it comes from whatever type of standard of care uh, that's a, a hallmark of it it seems um, and then there are there's the changes in the disease itself and then there's the, the drugs that are used to ameliorate the side effects of the, the primary treatment and yet more drugs to deal with the side effects of the drugs dealing with the side effects of the, the, the treatment. So a cancer patient represents a very, very uh, sensitive uh, situation. You can't just go using drugs willy nilly. And so that safety was absolutely paramount to us. And when we considered the, the, the sort of drugs that we wanted to use, we wanted to use drugs that had a long history of safe use, um, and that safe use should include uh, being in cancer patients, uh, you know, for their primary outcomes, you know, like the worming tablet that you spoke of, or the anti-infective agent, or the diabetes or anti-cholesterol agents, they're all used in cancer patients. And we wanted to have, um, to be able to use these drugs within their existing and historical dosing uh, regime, such that we could rely to some extent upon the, the tremendous history of safety of, of the medicines. So that was the, the, the one of the screens, if you like, how many medicines were there that were uh, very readily prescribed to cancer patients. They could have lots of mechanistic and supporting data throughout all of those studies that I, I described to you from animals and tissues up to small clinical studies. 
So then when, when we went through the pharmacopoeia looking for those and that they must also impact Warburg-type processes, these underlying metabolic processes, we very readily came down to uh, a short list where we thought there would be uh, mechanistic um, overlap between them, uh, synergy between them, safety uh, in, in their use and their historical use, and a vast amount of uh, scientific data and uh, pharmacological data to support their use. And that, that took us quite a while to get down to that, but it certainly wasn't going through the 5,000 once we applied that kind of, of, of screen. Right. And typically, well, nowadays, with the ideal goal to have a patient use this cocktail first, before they go to the you know the normal triad of surgery and radiation, yeah, you know, yeah, or yeah. can it only be used as an adjunct? I mean, what's the, the status of it? So what the, what these drugs do, and this is what the data certainly supports. What these drugs do is make it very difficult for a cancer cell to survive in in a hostile environment. That hostile environment is, of course, one that we would immediately think of. Well, that means chemotherapy and radiotherapy and hormone therapy and immunotherapy, doesn't it? Yes, of course, it does mean that. But also it means in the presence of one's own immune system, the fact that most of us remain cancer free for most of our lives is down to our immune system. You know, we we get uh, precancerous cells all the time that our immune system uh, clears out. And there's a lot of data to support that, that these drugs appear to have functionality to support the immune system as well. But in the context of what we're trying to do, where patients have already got uh, cancer, the the threat that the uh, the threat to the cancer cells is from those primary standard of care treatments. But in order to have their adjunctive effect, of course, they have to be on board uh, with the patients while they're receiving their uh, primary treatments. Because they're so low side effect and so well tolerated, what I'd really like to, to happen is that patients could be on these drugs almost on a, a sort of pre-diagnosis state. You know, when, when people would go to their doctor and the doctor says, yeah, that, that lump looks a bit suspicious, I would like to send you to, uh, to the oncologist. Maybe in the future we can get to a situation where people could be uh, treated with these drugs as a potential prior to getting their, their uh, standard of care uh, first treatment. But what happens today in in our clinic, for example, is people are diagnosed with with cancer. They then come and find us, and then uh, part way through their primary treatments, they adopt the protocol. Uh, but it would be far better to adopt the protocol, in my view, at the at the earliest possible stage. When people do, people tend to come to you after they've gone through and been damaged and you know tired out by the normal protocols, or they had people find you and. What's a typical patient have in their mind and why they would go to your clinic and not just stick with traditional stuff? Yeah. So, um, so when a patient's diagnosed with cancer, and you see this all the time when you talk to them, when a patient's diagnosed with cancer, you pretty quickly their life is taken over by the whole thing, you know, the shock, the fear perhaps, and then the treatments and the processes that they have to go through for standard of care. They have a flood of information. Some of it seems barely understood, and all of it demands that they make some decisions. It's a very, very turbulent time for for patients. Um, 
they rapidly become very well informed, or, or many of them do, and quickly know more about their conditions and their treatments and their prospects than, than many of the healthcare professionals, I think. And I fully understand that these patients then look around and say, well, well what else can I do? Because they can inspect the survival tables that are so readily published, as well as anybody else. Um, and so they do look around, and uh, that's, that's when patients will find us. Um, that, that's generally how they, they, they will present to us, because they, they become kind of experts relatively quickly, I think, uh, and then look for what else can I do to, to maximise my chances. And indeed, I suppose that was, that was the situation that my wife and I were in. But when patients do find you, what do they say? I want to go with you and I'm not doing the traditional treatments or I don't know what to do. I'm going to try everything I can. Yeah. What's the typical response? Yeah. Um, some people do say uh, they're not going to try the, the, the typical treatments. That's, that's not what we encourage, actually. You know, standard of care, you know, that's one of those urban myths, isn't it? That um, standard of care is ineffective and has failed. You know, that can be quite a popular view, but it's not our view. We do understand they're not perfect. Um, and we do understand that there are refinements to identify responders and so on. But in the vast majority of cases, standard of care has a part to play. And that's why what we do uh, is to focus our attention on trying to make standard of care as effective as possible by adding an adjunctive arm to uh, their treatment through, through the care oncology protocol. But most people, I think, are looking to say, well, what can I do to add to my uh, standard of care? Um, our key feature is, of course, that you can do lots to add to your standard of care and people add all sorts of supplements and additional therapies and treatments and so on and so forth. But to go back to one of my previous points about cancer patients being in a, in a sensitive situation, we believe having a medical oversight uh, of the, the, the protocol such that adjustments can be made in the changing circumstances that a patient finds her or himself in is, is the proper way of, of, of dealing with that. But mostly it's patients undergoing standard of care, wanting to find additional ways of um, helping themselves, I think. Yeah, it's a tough environment because you know, you're scared, you're depressed, yeah. you feel like you're going to die, which in a lot of cases people are. And then you have people talking about natural cures versus standard of care and maybe them calling each other quacks and it's just yeah. a very confusing, difficult environment. Yeah, it's a it's a, a hugely difficult thing. And there's a pile of information available to people uh, all the time on this. Um, and there are always people that uh, are hungry for, for so much information to try and try and help themselves. And there's a, a vast amount of information for people to try and find their way through um one of my one of the things i'm very well aware of is some of the other urban myths if you like when people are faced with this sort of information they'll actually say things like well well let's let's just use supplements you know with a belief that supplements are always safe just because you can buy something on the corner store at cvs in my view doesn't always mean it's safe certainly not in the complex situation of a cancer patient you know, if a cancer patient is expecting a supplement to have a biological effect in terms of killing cancer cells, then it's entirely reasonable. That would also have a broader set of effects and that these may emerge as side effects. And you know, some patients come to us with a very long list of supplements, many of which will have a biological activity, both good and bad in a cancer sense. It's just impossible to well, know that, absolutely in those situations. 
not only that, I mean, from what I've recently learned about generic versus uh, brand name drugs and supplements, how do you even know that what you're taking is what's yeah. purported to be on the label for, for medical drugs and for supplements? I mean, how yeah. do you deal with that, by the way? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, absolutely the case. You know, this is obviously more big, a bigger issue in, in terms of supplements. All of our uh, drugs are, of course, are FDA, MHRA approved. They uh, come from reputable suppliers of generics that are, are used throughout the world, actually, um, and very successfully. Uh, so they're managed through the, our drugs are all managed through the highly regulated pharmaceutical systems in place in, in all of the countries where they're used. So we can be pretty confident, you know, as confident as we can be, uh, that uh, what's in, in, in the package is, is, is indeed what's on the uh, label. Um, and that's certainly the way that uh, things are, are managed through the FDA. Yeah, like I've seen on Amazon, for instance, at least supplements have, in some cases, hundreds or thousands of reviews, a particular one. But there is no such thing for brand name versus generic drugs, at least for the public. So no. it's... No, that's right. You, you really are relying upon the uh, skills and the regulation and the authority of the FDA in the US and the, the, the regulating bodies around the world in their own jurisdictions to, to manage the uh, quality of, of, of these drugs. And, and by and large, that's pretty good, actually, I think. You know, yes, we do see stories... Uh, come up about uh, manufacturers in certain countries, uh, but they're stories that are being found out, aren't they? Um, and things are being done. They're being shut down and they're being taken off the shelves and so on. I'm pleased to say that none of those affect our drugs. Oh, good. Yeah. So what um, are you able to work with people that have any kind of cancer and at any stage or what are the criteria yeah, I mean, that, by which that, you can help someone? Sure, sure. I mean, that's one of the founding principles of our protocol is all to do with the Warburg effect. And remember what he was saying was one of the hallmarks of cancer is its change in oxidative respiration to fermentation. Um, that's oxidative respiration to glycolysis in the, in the modern language. And all of the uh, things that flow from that and now more widely considered the metabolic processes in cancer that are are separate and different to normal cells, but they are common to all cancer cells. So in that sense, and this is the way that we've set up our, our clinic and our studies, is that we are providing an adjunctive treatment to all cancer types because Warburg underpins or metabolism underpins changes in all cancer types, regardless of its tissue of origin. So that's the first point. First point is, yeah, we think this is relevant to all cancer types, regardless of if that being a, a solid tumor, a blood tumor, a brain tumor, a breast or a lung or liver or whatever. So we think that is a, a core principle. And um, right. with respect to sort of stage, you know, when patients are first diagnosed, I think that's the, the best opportunity, of course, and earlier diagnosis, the best opportunity to, to help patients live a, a much longer uh, life. Uh, so the, the earlier we can get to patients and uh, uh, use this treatment alongside standard of care, I think that is better. But all the time, patients are able to uh, mount an immune response or able to, to take 
standard of care, I think we have a potential part to play. There are, of course, the, the, the many very sad situations that you get to where a patient right at the end of their life, you, you have to, our doctors have to make the call. I'm sorry, I think this is now too late. And that's a, that's obviously a difficult discussion to have with patients. Uh, it's a common one too. Um, but the earlier we can get patients, uh, the better, uh, and across all, all cancer types, actually. How much of a, of a positive effect is the clinic having? Can you tell? So, you know, the, the, the only way of really telling that is to conduct uh, studies. And, you know, when I looked at all the literature, there's a vast amount of literature saying that uh, these things have a positive effect in cancer, you know, that there was uh, uh, a small study here or a larger study there or an epidemiological study somewhere else. So there's a lot of data to support their use in cancer, but there was not a definitive test. You know, the way that people talk about definitive tests these days is a placebo random controlled clinical trial, a placebo RCT, you know, and there, there, there wasn't one on this protocol, but there is all that vast amount of information available. But nor will there ever be one on this protocol because it's a complex protocol. You know, we're trying to multiple interventions on metabolic pathways. And if you wanted to do a placebo RCT on this protocol, it would be prohibitively expensive even for a major pharmaceutical company. But nevertheless, we wanted to uh, publish results. And we, we, we started to look at, and this is what we've done already, started to look at ways of uh, being able to publish these results uh, in a way where uh, the oncology community can start to believe that these are meaningful clinical studies. We did not want to just put out into the, uh, the scientific literature, yet another study that is not helping people to come to uh, conclusions about the viability of these treatments. We wanted something a bit more definitive. And we've made our first steps at that, actually. Uh, recently, we published our first preliminary uh, report of glioblastoma, which is a, a very, very aggressive brain cancer. Um, and we can publish this Obviously, it's, it's done under the, the guidance of our regulatory authorities, but we can publish this because, rather sadly, the, the prospects in glioblastoma are rather grim. And it is uh, a population that's relatively easy to report upon because of that sad feature. And what, what we showed uh, in this preliminary analysis, which we're going to continue with, is that you know the standard of care historically has given us 14 months in this patient group as an average life expectancy. And what we saw in our uh, preliminary clinical write-up here, looking at uh, historical controls, is uh, a 28-month um, life uh, expectancy, which is absolutely an enormous uh, increase when you consider what happened when the standard of care chemotherapy was induced, in, introduced I think about 20 years ago, which is a drug called temozolomide. Um, what happened there was standard of care was simply surgery and radiotherapy. And it went up from the 12 months to the 14 months that uh, temozolomide could give people. And that was greeted uh, in spite of the side effects of the drug as a very significant breakthrough. So you can see how excited we would be with potentially adding at very low additional side effect burden 
you know, almost a 100% increase in life expectancy. So, you know, we're trying to publish, we're trying to change the baseline here. Our vision would be, can we, can we get a protocol like this to patients as early as possible? Can we get it to these patients uh, so, such that they can all afford it wherever they are in the world? Um, and can we do that as early as possible? And, and we're trying to publish our way into that in a sense, because that's the only way I think that uh, the clinical oncology community will adopt this sort of uh, metabolic profile uh, program. Do you have uh, any significant number of outliers, people that live three, four or five times what's expected? Uh, I'd, I'd have to go and inspect the data, but there are always those in all cancers. Actually, you know, a, a oncologists over here say to me, you know, when we first started talking about that, I'm not interested in seeing a few patients and some of them surviving for, for a very long time. We all have our miracles, uh, is, is said. And of course, happily, that is so, especially for those those patients. That's why you really need to do um, proper statistical uh, studies. Um, and that's and that's what we're doing. So within that, yes, there will be those that are living longer and those that are living shorter. But it's the t- statistics of the study that will uh, deal with those effects. But are you observing a lot of miracles, or can you even say are you suspiciously uh, thinking hmm, we're getting a lot of miracles here, or is it no, not like that? It's just I, longer. I think, uh... I think, Richard, what we are seeing is an elongation of patients' lives. I think we, uh, and I think that's what we've seen in the glioblastoma group. I think that's what we saw with my wife. Uh, she got an extra four or five years that she would not otherwise have had. And, and that, so that was, that was a great thing for us. Um, no, I think what we are doing is an incremental step forward. Uh, this isn't a cure for cancer. Uh, it's an incremental step forward. We are helping patients, I think, uh, get uh, a better life expectancy than they would otherwise have. And I think they're getting that at a very marginal effect upon um, side effect burden. Certainly they don't have additional side effects like like chemotherapy and so on. So I think that's what we are. I think that's where we are uh, going to see this approach lie eventually. Um, but it is going to be something that in the fullness of time, should be very readily available to everybody. It should be uh, available at diagnosis. It's not going to be something that will be restricted to those people that uh, are wealthy. Uh, I think it's it has a tremendous potential in that way. A friend of mine describes this, instead of it being a moonshot to um, uh, treat uh, a cancer cure, this is a ground shot. This is an incremental step forward where we can do something significant to help patients right now. Well, that's still an excellent thing. So, yeah. uh, Robin, what's the best way for do you only work with people in the UK or do you have clinics in other countries yet, like the US? With, yeah, the status? So there is. Yes, we do. Yeah, we do. Uh, we, we set up in, in the UK initially. Uh, we set up in uh, London as a clinic that people would visit. Um, we quickly became aware that people actually wanted to do this via, via video consultation as well. We do have patients around the world, actually, that we can try and help and advise upon. And it was, I think, last year that we set up uh, Care Oncology in the U.S. So there's a a U.S. website as well as a U.K. website. 
So these are the two first territories uh, that we have uh, presence in uh, on, uh, within the territory, so to speak. And people in both those territories can easily access the care oncology protocol, but most importantly, the medical oversight and the medical supervision that goes with it. Because remember, these are, are complex, difficult uh, patient situations that requires the medical oversight in order to properly manage uh, patient safety. And I think that's one of the things that makes us attractive to people, actually. People know they want to do something additional, but want a, some medical oversight in doing so. And I think that's what we're providing for the, the care oncology protocol, both in the UK and in uh, the US. That's excellent. Well, Robin, so the best way is what uh, website? How do people find out? Just Google yeah, it. So uh, the, the, the US website is www.careoncology. And uh, for, for the UK, it's www.careoncologyclinic.com both.coms um and there's lots of information on those websites actually and that's one of the things about these drugs they're such well-known drugs and i often say to to people if you want to find out about these drugs and and and, and they they often do i say well go and find out about them yourself all of this information is available you know i've distilled it we've distilled it we've put it into a protocol but you are able to go and see this information yourself and make up your own mind about uh, prospects and how they might be be changed. And a lot of that information is on those websites. You know, the, the source information, the information that I used all those years ago to start to think that maybe we can do something positive in cancer. Well, that's excellent, Robin. Thank you for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. A, a pleasure. A pleasure. You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you. Thank you.